Story 7 and Story 8 of Battles for the Stars in Space, Ed Reed Short Sci-Fi, Volume 3. Navy Day by Harry Harrison General Wingrove looked at the rows of faces without seeing them. His vision went beyond the Congress of the United States, past the balmy June day to another day that was coming, a day when the Army would have its destined place of authority. He drew a deep breath and delivered what was perhaps the shortest speech ever heard in the hallowed halls of Congress. The general staff of the U.S. Army requests Congress to abolish the archaic branch of the armed forces known as the U.S. Navy. The aging senator from Georgia checked his hearing aid to see if it was in operating order, while the press box emptied itself in one concerted rush and a clatter of running feet that died off in the direction of the telephone room. A buzz of excited comment ran through the giant chamber. One by one the heads turned to face the naval section where rows of blue figures stirred and buzzed like smoked-out bees. The knot of men around a paunchy figure heavy with gold braid spoke up, and Admiral Fitzjames climbed slowly to his feet. Lesser men have quailed before that piercing stare, but General Wingrove was never the lesser man. The Admiral tossed his head with disgust, every line of his body denoting outraged dignity. He turned to his audience, a small pulse beating in his forehead. I cannot comprehend the General's attitude, nor can I understand why he has attacked the Navy in his unwarranted fashion. The Navy has existed and will always exist as the first barrier of American defense. I ask you, gentlemen, to ignore this request as you would ignore the statements of any person, uh, slightly demented. I should like to offer a recommendation that the general's sanity be investigated and an inquiry be made as to the mental health of anyone else connected with this preposterous proposal. The general smiled calmly. I understand, Admiral. I really don't blame you for being slightly annoyed, but please let us not bring this issue of national importance down to a shallow personal level. The army has facts to back up this request, facts that shall be demonstrated tomorrow morning. Turning his back on the raging admiral, General Wingrove included all the assembled Solons in one sweeping gesture. Reserve your judgment until that time, gentlemen. Make no hasty judgments until you've seen the force of argument with which we back up our request. It is the end of an era. In the morning the navy joins its fellow fossils, the dodo and the brontosaurus. The admiral's blood pressure mounted to a new record, and the gentle thud of his unconscious body striking the floor was the only sound to break the shocked silence of the giant hall. The early morning sun warmed the white marble of the Jefferson Memorial, and glinted from the soldiers' helmets and the roofs of the packed cars that crowded forward in a slow-moving stream. All the gentlemen of Congress were there, the passage of their cars cleared by the screaming sirens of motorcycle policemen. Around and under the wheels of the official cars pressed a solid wave of government workers and common citizens of the capital city. The trucks of the radio and television services pressed close, microphones and cameras extended. The stage was set for a great day. Neat rows of olive drab vehicles curved along the water's edge. Jeeps and half-trucks shouldered close by weapons carriers and six-by, all of them shrinking to insignificance beside the looming patent tanks. A speaker's platform was set up in the centre of the line near the audience. At precisely ten a.m., General Wingrove stepped forward and scowled at the crowd until they settled into an uncomfortable silence. Each speech was short, 
and consisted of nothing more than amplifications of his opening statement, that actions speak louder than words. He pointed to the first truck in line, a two-and-a-half ton filled with an infantry squad sitting stiffly at attention. The driver caught the signal and kicked the engine into life. With a grind of gears it moved forward towards the river's edge. There was an indrawn gasp from the crowd as the front wheels ground over the marble parapet. Then the truck was plunging down toward the muddy waters of the Potomac. The wheels touched the water, and the surface seemed to sink, while taking on a strange glassy character. The truck roared into high gear and rolled forward on the surface of the water, surrounded by a saucer-shaped depression. It parked two hundred yards offshore, and the soldiers, goaded by the sergeant's bark, leapt out and lined up with showy, present arms. The general returned the salute and waved to the remaining vehicles. They moved forward in a series of manoeuvres that indicated a great number of rehearsal hours on some hidden pond. The tanks rumbled slowly over the water, while the jeeps cut back and forth through their lines in intricate patterns. The trucks backed and turned like puffing ballerinas. The audience was rooted in a hushed silence, their eyeballs bulging. They continued to watch the amazing display as General Wingrove spoke again. You see before you a typical example of army ingenuity developed in army laboratories. These multi-units are supported on the water by an intensifying of the surface tension in their immediate area. Their weight is evenly distributed over the surface, causing the shallow depressions you see around them. This remarkable feat has been accomplished by the use of the Dorner fire a remarkable invention that is named after that brilliant scientist, Colonel Robert A. Dorn, commander of the Brook Point Experimental Laboratory. It was there that one of the civilian employees discovered the Dorn effect, under the colonel's constant guidance, of course. Utilizing this invention, the army now becomes master of the sea as well as the land. Army convoys of trucks and tanks can blanket the world. The surface of the water is our highway, our motor park, our battleground the airfield and runway for our planes. Mechanics were pushing a shooting star onto the water. They stepped clear as flame gushed from the tailpipe. With a familiar whooshing rumble it sped down the Potomac and hurled itself into the air. When this cheap and simple method of crossing oceans is adopted, it will of course mean the end of that fantastic medieval anachronism, the Navy. No need for billion-dollar aircraft carriers, battleships, dry docks, and all the other cumbersome junk that keeps those boats and things afloat gives the taxpayer back his hard-earned dollar. Teeth grated in the naval section, as carriers and battleships were called, boats, and the rest of America's sea made lumped under the casual heading of things. Lips were curled at the transparent appeal to the taxpayer's pocketbook, but with leaden hearts they knew that all this justified wrath and contempt would avail them nothing. This was Army Day with a vengeance and the doom of the navy seemed inescapable. The army had made elaborate plans for what they called Operation Sinker. Even as the general spoke, the publicity mills ground into high gear. From coast to coast, the citizens absorbed the news with their morning nourishment. Agnes, you hear what the radio said? The army is going to give a trip around the world in a B-36 as first prize in this limerick contest. All you have to do is fill in the last line and mail one copy to the Pentagon and the other to the Navy. The naval mailroom had standing orders to burn all the limericks when they came in, but some of the newer men seemed to think the entire thing was a big joke. Commander Bowman found one in the mess hall. The army will always be there, 
on the land, on the sea, in the air. So why should the navy take all of the gravy? To which a sea-going scribe had added, and not give us ensigns our share. The newspapers were filled daily with photographs of mighty B-36s landing on Lake Erie, and grinning soldiers making mock beachhead attacks on Coney Island. Each man wore a buzzing black box at his waist, and walked on the bosom of the now quiet Atlantic like a biblical prophet. Radio and television also carried the thousands of news releases that poured in an unending flow from the Pentagon building. Cards, letters, telegrams and packages descended on Washington. In an overwhelming torrent, the Navy Department was the unhappy recipient of deprecatory letters and a vast quantity of little cardboard battleships. The people spoke, and their representatives listened closely. This was an election year. There didn't seem to be much doubt as to the decision, particularly when the reduction in the budget was considered. It took Congress only two months to make up its collective mind. The people were all pro-army. The novelty of the idea had fired their imagination. They were about to take the final vote in the lower house. If the amendment passed, it would go to the states for ratification, and their votes were certain to follow that of Congress. The Navy had fought a last-ditch battle to no avail. The balloting was going to be pretty much of a sure thing. The wet-water Navy would soon become ancient history. For some reason, the admirals didn't look as unhappy as they should. The Naval Department had requested one last opportunity to address the Congress. Congress had patronizingly granted permission, for even the doomed man has allowed one last speech. Admiral Fritz James, who had recovered from his choleric attack with the appointed speaker. Gentlemen of the Congress of the United States, we in the Navy have a fighting tradition. We damn the torpedoes and sail straight ahead into the enemy's fire, if that was necessary. We have been stabbed in the back. We have suffered a second Pearl Harbor sneak attack. The Army relinquished its rights to fair treatment with this attack. Therefore, we are counter-attacking. Worn out by his attacking and mixed metaphors, the admiral mopped his brow. Our laboratories have been working night and day on the perfection of a device we hoped we would never be forced to use. It is now in operation, having passed the final trials a few days ago. The significance of this device cannot be underestimated. We are so positive of its importance that we are demanding that the army be abolished. He waved his hand toward the window and bellowed one word. Look! Everyone looked. They blinked and looked again. They rubbed their eyes and kept looking. Sailing majestically up the middle of Constitution Avenue was the battleship Missouri. The Admiral's voice rang through the room like a trumpet of victory. Mark one D binder, as you see, temporarily lessens the binding energies that hold molecules of solid matter together. Solids become liquids, and a ship equipped with this device can sail anywhere in the world, on sea or land. Take your vote, gentlemen. The world awaits your decision. End of Story 7 Belly Laugh by Ivor Jorgensen Me, I'm looking for my outfit. Got cut off in that Holland Tunnel attack. Mind if I sit down with you guys a while? Thanks. Coffee. Damn, this is heaven. Ain't in a cup of coffee in a year. What? You said it. It sure is a hell of a war. Tough on a guy's feet. Yeah, that's right. Holland Tunnel skirmish. Where the Ruskies used that new gun. Uh-huh. God, it was awful. Guys popping off all around the guy and him not knowing why. No sense to it. No noise. No wound. Just popping off. That's the trouble with this war. It won't settle down to a routine. Always something new. 
What the hell chance has a guy got to figure things out? And I tell you, them Ruskies are coming up with new weapons just as fast as we are, enough to make your hair stand on end. Sugar? Christ, yes, ain't seen sugar for a year. You see, it's like this. We were bottled up in the pits around the tunnel for seven damn days. It was like nothing you ever saw before. Oops, sorry. Didn't mean to splash you. I was laughing about something that happened there to a guy. Maybe you guys would get a kick out of it. After all, we got to keep our sense of humor. You see, there was me and a Kentucky kid named Stillwell in this pit. A pretty big pit with lots of room and we were all alone. This Stillwell was a nice kid. Green and lonesome and was pretty sad, really, but there's a yak in it. And as I say, we gotta keep a sense of humor. Well, this Stillwell, a really green kid, is unhappy and just plain drooling for his gal back home. He talks about his mother, of course, and his old man, but it's the girl that's really on his mind, as you guys can plainly understand. He's seen her every place like spots in front of his eyes, nice spots doing things to him when this rusky babe shows up. My gun came up without any orders from me, just as she poked her puss over the edge of the pit, and, oh, thank you kindly, it sure tastes good, but I don't want to short you guys, thank you kindly. Well, as I was saying, this rusky babe pokes her nose over the edge of the pit and still well dives and knocks down my gun. He says, you son of a bitch, just like that, wild and desperate like you'd see to a guy if the guy was just kicking off the last jug of water on a desert island. It would have been long enough for her to kill us if I hadn't had good reflexes. Even then, all I had time to do was knock the pistol out of her hand and drag her into the pit. With her play bollocks, she was confused and bewildered. She ain't a fighter, and she sits back against the wall, staring at us deadpan with big, expressionless eyes. She was a plenty pretty babe, and I could see exactly what had happened as far as Stillwell was concerned. His spots had come to life in very adequate form, so to speak. Stillwell goes over and sits down beside her, and I'm very much on the alert, because I know where his courage comes from, but I decide it's all right, because I see the babe is not belligerent, just confused, kind of, and friendly, and willing. Kind of a wept little dog, willing, a man on oh man, she was sure what Stillwell needed. They kind of went together like a hand and a glove, natural-like, and it followed pretty natural that when Stillwell got up and led her around a wing of the pit, out of sight, she went willing like that same little dog. Oh, no, you guys, two's enough, I wouldn't rob you. Well, okay, and thanks kindly. Well, there I was all alone, but happy for Stillwell, because I know it's what the kid needs, and in spots like that, what difference does it make? Yank, rusk him, on go in as long as she's willing. Then you guys, Stillwell comes back out, wall-eyed, real wall-eyed, like being hit but not knocked out and still walking. I know what it is, some kind of shock. I get up and walk over and take a look at the babe where it left her, and I burst out laughing. I told you guys there was a yak in this. I laughed like a fool. It was that funny, as much as I had time to before Stillwell cracked. It was enough to crack him, the little thing that pushes a guy over the edge. He lets out a yell and screams, for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, nothing but a bucket of bolts, nothing but a couple of plastic lumps. That was when I hit him. I had to. He was for the bird, Stillwell was. An hour later, we got relieved and a couple of medicos carried him away, strapped to a stretcher, gone like a kite. They took the robot, too, and its clothes, but they forgot the brassiere, so I took it, and I've been carrying it ever since. But I'll leave it with you guys, if you want, for the coffee. Might make you think about home. After all, like the man says, we gotta keep our sense of humor. Well, so long, you guys, and thanks.